Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, November 9th, 2020. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So President-elect uh, Biden is now President-elect Biden. Um, and I, I find that we're on the horns of a dilemma here because um, everybody that that I know and everybody whom I follow and care about are still consumed with the question of what President Trump is going to do and how is he going to behave and how is he going to react and uh, what does this mean for the future and what about 2024? And I, I, I think that I wanted to ask Christine, it's like Trump has been this bl- thing that blots out the sun, you know, for five years. And it is as though we are incapable of dealing with a piece of news that puts him in a subsidiary position. And that somehow everything has been reoriented through a filter of Trump to this extent that when I, I read this morning about the Pfizer, the you know, the the notification that 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 Pfizer had very encouraging results with its vaccine trials, that my first thought was, oh boy, Trump, you know, Trump is gonna say if this if they held it back for a week. Uh, in order to get you know, let Biden win, and that he was gypped, and what does that have to do with anything? First of all, I mean it's almost certainly not true. Second of all, wh- why does that? Why is that where my brain goes? And I think it's that we have been trained to focus on him to the exclusion of almost everything else, not only in politics but in American culture and American life. No, it's funny because I know that for years everyone's been talking about supposedly Trump derangement syndrome, but it's actually more like a, it's more planetary and he's the gas giant, right? So like it's moving out of orbit and we still can see it. It's still there because look, he doesn't legally even have to concede the election. He just has to leave by inauguration day. There's nothing in the constitution saying that a president has to officially uh, concede. Once the election is certified, he's gone. It's very simple and, and out he'll go. He'll become a private citizen on that day. And if he's trespassing, he'll be removed. I don't think it's going to get to that. But I do think that the, the COVID vaccine is really an interesting um, argument because the, per- the people who freaked out about it immediately weren't uh, those of us uh, on the conservative side who are wondering about this new realignment. It was Governor Cuomo who went on the news immediately and started saying, well, I don't think we're going to be we, we don't want to see this distributed during during Trump, the Trump administration, because we can't trust Trump. They're still in the midst of an argument that had been they've been making during the election, even though everything has supposedly changed. So I thought uh, and that's bad because that's going to lead to more suspicion on the part of people who need to get this vaccine once it hopefully comes to market. So you also saw it with Pfizer, which very carefully said, we're not part of Operation Warp Speed, which isn't quite true. They, they didn't take research money, but they did agree to be one of the vaccine distributors that would take money from the federal government if a vaccine is created to, to have the government buy it from them. So you- uh, Operation Warp Speed is the uh, is the program set up by the Trump administration to right. fast track virus 
research uh distribute and, and theoretically distribution and, and and creation okay and i just think what everyone should do now is starve starve him of attention he is president for a few more months until inauguration he's a lame duck um we should be very careful about not allowing this. And I'll be curious to see Biden is meeting with his, his, he's going to form his task force on COVID and they're meeting today and et cetera, et cetera. He should just start talking like he's president and we'll see how that goes. But it was really interesting to me that it was Cuomo who immediately went into Trump derangement syndrome mode the minute the Pfizer news was announced today. That was interesting. But, you know, that's because it's not really, it's not solely a matter of starving Trump of attention. Trump centrism is a bipartisan habit for everyone right? right so it's it's not he's 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 the pusher but we but there's still the the need you know speaking of this in terms of addiction is i think valuable because a lot of people have become addicted to the kind of excitement that was that typified the trump era pl- political excitement there was always something every day and you're all going to need some landing gear because withdrawal is coming if you it took effort on your part to not be driven crazy by this president and his ubiquity in American civic and social life. If you had to actively try not to be driven nuts. And a lot of people didn't try that hard. In fact, I think they probably enjoyed it. But you're a lot more better equipped to navigate this environment if you didn't. Because the whole world has moved on. The whole world has congratulated income, whether with the exception of some adversarial powers abroad, mm-hmm. the whole world has congratulated the incoming president and the institutions are moving in predictable and unexciting ways towards a transition. And it could be dangerous if the president doesn't succeed, but it's entirely hypothetical. We have no evidence of imminent danger as a result of that. And just because some transition officials are dragging their feet doesn't suggest anything abnormal is going on. That's not even weird. And it's not going to have any impact on how this transition unfolds. Only the most plugged in of political observers will even notice. So there is a phenomenon, a, a, I don't know what you call it, biological, physical, perceptual phenomenon called persistence of vision. I was just reading a book for no particularly good reason by a film editor. And he, he, uh, what he says is that, uh, persistence of vision is, is the weird experience where, you see an image briefly, even after the image has gone. So your, your brain has to catch up with the change in what is before it. And it essentially duplicates the last frame that it saw before it moves on. And so as a result in say film editing, I'm not, I want to go into this. It's like, you can almost cut things a teeny weeny weeny bit early to jump something because the brain of the viewer fills in the image. It's weird, right? And it's a real thing. It's called persistence of vision. This is what happens when a president loses or when a politician loses and there's a lame duck period, which is that there is persistence of vision. We still think in terms of the political reality that govern things on the day of the election or the day before the election, but everything has actually changed. And particularly those who do not want the picture to shift are holding on to the persistence of vision, which is why you hear among people who are trying to be, I would say, 
I don't know how you would describe it, like Trump whispery in relation to the claims, the completely fraudulent claims of mass voter fraud and all of that. When they say things like, you've got to give us time, you've got to give people, conservatives, time to get around the to come to grips with the the loss is essentially the case. And so let them work through. And the working through is that they don't accept the results of the election. They believe whatever theory and ridiculous theory there is that is being peddled. And that somehow we're all supposed to conform to their persistence of vision problem. We're supposed to say, look, they're having a persistence of vision problem. So we'll just wait around until they calm down. Now, nothing's going to wait around until they calm down. Biden and his people have literally no reason to wait around until they calm down. There are some structural things that might there might be real difficulties with, like the whole question of whether or not there is a transition. Now, uh, you know, the George W. Bush transition didn't start until 37 days after the election because he wasn't president-elect until until the Supreme Court ruled and Gore conceded. And then the Clinton administration sort of pushed the button that said, okay, everybody come in for your briefings and we'll give you our books and we'll do all that stuff that we're, we're going to do. And that seemed okay. I mean, it's not like anything really terrible happened except that apparently, you know, idiot Clinton staffers in the White House broke the keyboards and took letters off the keyboards and stuff like that to, you know, just be jerks um, when the Bush people came in. And I, one can presume the same thing will probably happen with Trump and the Biden people. But, um, you know, I think it's just very interesting that we are now in a position where uh, people with tr- seeking viability for their future places in the, in the Republican party um, are actually contributing implicitly to the idea that it's okay for emotional psychological reasons to continue with the fiction that an election, particularly in Pennsylvania, where Biden is now up over 50,000 votes can be somehow uh, overturned through a recount or through court cases or stuff like that. As we were reading, the, the the largest single recount shift in uh, modern American political history was 1,100 votes. And the famous, the thing that triggered the court case in Pennsylvania that the Supreme Court ruled on, which was this question of whether or not ballots executed and postmarked by midnight on election day, but not received until the Friday, three days later, whether they were to be counted. And they have not been counted. There are 50,000 of them, 49,000 of them, and they have, they've been segregated and they are not in the count. Therefore, there is no, it appears, there is literally no way if every if 100% of those ballots were for Trump, he wouldn't win. So he doesn't even have an argument that, that the argument that he made before the Supreme Court that they had to do, that, that, that there's even anything material there that could upend the results of the election. It's, and yet it's, here we are. It's interesting though, right? Because after 2016, a similar, although not, it didn't play out in the legal sphere and, and, and in the kind of um, the theories about, immediate theories about the election being stolen or fraudulent. Those came later with the Russia stuff. But there was this immediate period after Trump uh, was declared the winner that 
the left was basically asking for similar similar time, right? You know, everybody had to mourn the loss of not having the first female president. You know, we had the, the Women's March was immediately set into motion to plan for January. There was this, you know, outpouring of grief. And, and we, we were told mainly by the mainstream media, which itself also was grieving, to give everybody time to adjust to this new shocking reality. So in a way, that's something that we go through every four years, right? And, and given the sort of partisan commitments on either side, understandable. I, I agree with you, John, that, that the legal question here is is going to have to stop and somebody's going to have to have that moment. And I guess they're doing this now with, with Trump, um, you know, starting to talk to him about how to concede. And actually for him, it'll have to be about protecting his brand. That's going to be, I think, the only message that gets him to think about how to exit gracefully if he wants to, because he doesn't care about the party and he doesn't care about the Senate runoffs in, in Georgia, which will decide uh, the balance there. So well, his brand is incompatible with a graceful exit. It's <laughs> a good point. <laughs> like there's, there's just no way to reconcile those two things. And moreover, it is unnecessary. It is ultimately a, a grace, um, you know, a, some deference uh, and maintains continuity of the system, but it is purely cosmetic and, President Vice Pre- I'm sorry, President Elect Joe Biden um, is taking a tonal approach to this transition that I think more than makes up for its absence in the president. Well, well okay, so so there. Oh, go, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say I don't know, but more than makes up for its absence, I'm not so sure. I mean, we have a couple months of interregnum period here where Trump. I mean, it's not it's not just um, we're not only looking to Trump to. Um, be graceful or not be graceful about the transition. He's still president, um, and and he's still working on his brand throughout throughout the next couple months. And God knows what that's going to mean. I mean, if he was, you know, um, so unpresidential throughout the four years, now when it doesn't matter, imagine um, how right. he's going to conduct himself generally. You know, we've been getting email over the last uh, four or five days, uh, listeners who are angry because they think we're somehow gloating over the defeat, which I think is uh, un- unjust. Uh, I think we're trying to analyze the defeat and talk about, you know, what comes next and what it means and 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 all of that. Um, I think the notion that one is obliged out of uh, fealty to some of the many good things that the Trump administration did on judges, on the Abraham Accords, um, some of the uh, policy moves that he made to restrict the federal government's um, horrible behavior were done by the administration on Title IX and on critical race theory most recently, and some of that, that out of, out of, out of fealty or out of a wish to celebrate or be mindful and respectful that so many good things have been done uh, among conservatives that we are then obliged somehow to accept and the behavior that is standing right in, in, in front of us. And I deeply reject this notion had Donald Trump been, this is one of these things where you can't tease out these strands because you know, it's it, you're you're starting to create fictions that don't match reality. But had Donald Trump been the president of the policy that he enacted uh, up until COVID, where his policy behavior was bizarre, um, but had he been president of the policies that he enacted, 
I think there are many signs that this election would have gone a lot better for him, particularly when you look at how Republicans did down ballot. That's why we said last week, I wrote this piece, The Repudiation, that we said that what we saw here was a rejection of the Trump approach to the presidency as a human being and as a man and as a person. And um, I am enough of a conservative to believe that among the standards that conservatives are supposed to uphold are traditional forms of adult behavior. And that means, as Harvey Mansfield has written about extensively, I've written about to some degree, you know, uh, an, uh, an effort to understand what it means to be manly uh, in the modern era when people don't have to go and hunt for their food or, you know, or beat off, you know, predators who are going to come to, you know, menace their, you know, menace their households or stuff like that for the most part. And one thing that we all understand about manliness is that it has to do with how you deal with adversity and defeat. And Trump is now, as we say in the modern context, modeling the most unmanly behavior that we have probably ever seen from any important person ever. I mean, it is unmanly what he is doing. And we conservatives who stand around talking about the danger of you know of lack of respect for 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 the manly virtues are now being asked to stand here and give him a pass on this i want to briefly elaborate on the unfairness of it all even though I, i'm hesitant to wallow in a persecution complex that i critique in so many other people but um we are i am extremely trepidatious about how joe biden will approach foreign policy um a variety of this president this incoming administrations, the people in its orbit are um, people I don't trust and who I will uh, be particularly wary of and critique. And I have only ever done so in the Trump era. In fact, I think I, I can stand by the notion that to the extent that the president was criticized by me or others um, who have this um, outlook on his presidency, it was when he departed from conservative orthodoxy and undermined conservative causes. Only ever that and to the extent that this election has produced outcomes that will be beneficial to the advancement of conservative causes, even if it's only uh, from a position of rearguard action or blocking, um, that is something to be okay with. And to look on is to see as a bright side, a silver lining in what is otherwise a, a, a setback for certainly for Republicanism and perhaps for conservatism. But to fail to make that distinction is a psychological construct just to help you get through this thing, to see it not as a failure on Donald Trump's part, but the lack of zealotry, the lack of commitment to the cause from people around him. It's just an excuse. Well, there was also, can I just say there was also a lot of pressure among conservatives to declare that Trump was uh, truly going to destroy everything about our system and was destroying everything about our system. And I think some of us who believed had more faith in that system I know I was often criticized for like not, you know, you're trying to excuse his behavior. No, it's not excusing his behavior. It's placing enough trust in our system that it can weather even a Donald Trump, which I think this election proved it could. That's a very important. Oh, sorry, go, no, ahead. No, no, no. go ahead. No, I was just going to say, like, you know, we had four years of this. Uh, you know, uh, this is a fascist and we're there, you know, you know what happens with fascists? They don't lose first term elections in enormous turnout. Uh, generated by his his 
uh, matchless ability to bring out the other side uh, to win first the House and then the presidency. Like, he generated that. The, the Democratic Party, as we've said a thousand times, with the exception of voting for Barack Obama in 2008 and then sort of like almost like as an atavism voting for him in 2012, the Democratic Party over the course of the of the eight years be- from 2008 to 2016 was a party whose heart had fled it, who who that had either sort of destroyed its own brand by losing, no, what are the, there were a thousand legislative seats in the United States lost by, by 1100 total seats across the federal and legislative level. Right. That, that, uh, that State you're level. talking about, you know, the house, the Senate, 69 of 99 state legislatures were in the hands of Republicans when Barack Obama left office, Hillary Clinton famously, uh, had such an unenthusiastic electorate that that's really how she lost the three states in the upper Midwest and, and therefore the presidency. Uh, the Democratic Party is back. Just it's now generated somewhere north of 75 million, maybe up to it's going to be up to 80 million votes for Joe Biden, somebody about whom nobody has enthusiasm. Trump did that. Trump did that. Uh, and so, you know, uh, we we have to then say that, you know, he, has he been good for conservatism? Uh, he's been good for conservatism. He appointed three good judges, three good Supreme Court appears, three good Supreme Court justices and got a lot of judges through. But we have to get back to the and the I, I will say the he took the least. I'm sorry, I'm interrupting you, but yeah. he took the, the, his victories to us, people who view those victories as victories, which we're not of the populist nationalist mindset. So there are a variety of people who are would cite a variety of other victories. But the ones that we regard as unambiguous were the ones in which he outsourced the job of the presidency to institutions that were dominated by conventionally conservative establishmentarian Republicans who had spent the course of their careers preparing for this moment. Yeah, the Federalist Society. The Heritage Foundation. Yeah variety of others right. who staffed the right. administration, who recommended these judges, who executed right. his foreign policy, et cetera, right. and so forth. Right. Anyway, I don't want to sort of go back into – all I'm trying to say is that we are now being put in the position of saying – or politicians, elected politicians are being put – are being put on notice by the Trump world that what they say is being watched. It will be remembered. You better be on our side. You better watch yourself. You better be careful. All of that. But this is the point I wanted to make. It's not just the Trump world that's doing that. There is um, throughout the country, in the uh, sort of kind of a rabid uh, pundit class that is on all sides, that is still wrapped up in the zealotry regardless of the outcome, right? So there's the there are never Trumpers making lists of uh, of those who are sympathetic to Trump's now, uh, you know, legal legal challenge, legal challenges. Um there are liberals who are saying, uh, I know I know we're supposed to come together to heal now, but I will never forget that uh, the, the people who abetted the slaughter of uh, hundreds of thousands of Americans, I, I won't forgive them. Um, so there is talk, there is a sort of, uh, again, vision persistence 
not yeah. just about Trump, but about about the the zealotry and um, emotion of of the Trump era all around, right. not just yeah. among the Trump base. Am I alone in regarding that as completely pathetic? No, it yeah. Is so you entirely, are it is so entire. It's such an entirely impotent expression of agency at a time when events have spiraled beyond your control. When every indication we have is that the fringes, the real zealots on the fringes, are going to be far less powerful than they were in the Trump era. I, I don't agree with you. First of all, a world in which, as we've seen in Hollywood and journalism, and this, a world in which people make lists and they're public. And somebody goes to get a job at a law firm and the idea is, oh, you know, I saw your your name was on the list of people who like, you know, oh, you worked in the drum and forget it. Like, first of all, that's implicitly always been the case uh, for people who work in politics that, uh, you know, if if they're they work for somebody and they fall out of favor or something happens, like it's hard for them to get work unless they're ideologically congruent with the institutions there are. But we are living in a time in which in particular uh, liberal institutions are kowtowing to anybody who says, I don't feel safe with this person who voted for Trump working in this organization. And under those circumstances, worked for Trump, voted for Trump, wrote a letter to the editor saying that they that they liked a Trump policy, whatever. And and the ca- the path of least resistance, if you work there, is to is to assent to it rather than there being a controversy over the hiring that could happen in industry after industry institution after institution and so you have th- this is the ultimate un-american thing and it's and it's happening and they it is it is liberal leftist cow you know uh, social revolutionaries who are who are like pushing this policy as Abe mentioned but then you get this weird trump world version of it at the same time which is really directed at a very small number of people. In other words, like we, we've weathered the storm here at Commentary, right? We have been in this very odd position throughout the Trump years. And the people, thank you for listening and thank you for reading us. And, you know, people uh, are, who believe that there can be a complex perspective on these things have have gone with this. Other institutions are not have not been so fortunate, and the Weekly Standard was shut down, and various other things happened. And politicians who th- who are worried about their viability in the future are essentially being, you know, th- it's a nice job you have there. It would be a pity if something were to happen to it. You better fall in line and start saying things like, "There are real voting irregularities in Pennsylvania." When there are no voting irregularities in Pennsylvania, I'm sorry. I wish that I could see these goddamn voting irregularities, but everybody is making things up. They're lying out through their teeth about things they're not seeing, and then they're collating all these lies, and then they're spewing them back to each other in a giant loop of hysterical misinformation, and it is maddening like for example the big the big thing uh over the like yesterday or the day before yesterday was uh Ryan Kassam who was like uh Steve Bannon's boy uh you know like he worked for Breitbart and then he re- was on Steve Bannon's podcast the one I think where Bannon said that Anthony Fauci should be beheaded and all of that um so there is a there is a literally a phenomenon where he said, look, we've looked at all these ballots 
and there are all these votes for Biden at the top of the ticket and no votes below it. And this is proof of fraud. This is not proof of fraud. There is a known political phenomenon called ballot roll-off where people vote for the top of the ticket and then they get out of the polling booth. More than 10% of voters in every election only vote for the top of the ticket. And then in every election ever, 10%, and there are now who knows how many millions of people who have been convinced with this idea by this by this ludicrous notion that because there's ballot roll-off, this proves that people were manufacturing votes for Biden. And I don't know whether Rahim Kassam is an idiot or a scoundrel. I, he's probably both. D- didn't spend two minutes looking up to see what the story was with ballot roll-off, a known <laughs> electoral phenomenon. Help me out, guys. I'm ranting. This is driving me insane because it's like I'm saying this and then I know that there are people either listening or who have stopped listening. But if they were listening would say you're just disloyal. You're disloyal. Loyalty requires you to say that two plus two equals five. Okay, so what's the practical effect of that? Well, the practical effect of that is that it causes here's what here's the practical effect. Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham, who just won an election by 13 points, is going around saying Trump shouldn't concede. There are voting irregularities in Pennsylvania. It's really terrible. Why is he doing this? Who 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 is he? Why is he brown nosing Trump? Trump lost the election and he won. Now, he can say, I love Donald Trump. Donald Trump's the greatest president of my lifetime. I hope he runs again in 2024. I, you know, I I love golfing with him. He could say whatever he wants. He doesn't have to contribute to this psychosis. Why is he doing that? Well, he doesn't want the Trump mob coming after him. But by mob, I mean... He's got six years... He just got a six-year term. You know, 2026, we could be like we could be like living on Mars. I don't know. Well, then didn't you tell us why is he doing it? I don't know. Okay. That's why I'm asking you. Maybe you need a novelist to understand it. Maybe he's got persistence of vision. I don't know. Why yeah, why is why isn't it all illusory? Because Plato's cave is a real phenomenon. If you tell everybody that the shadows outside the cave are monsters, they're going to believe they're monsters instead of nothing. That's why. Okay, but maybe all of those people are alar- believed the polls like all of us did and thought that that was useful and true information and expected a landslide. And when the landslide didn't occur, now they're like, well, now wait a minute. What else could they be wrong about? They got the polls wrong. I mean, there's a sense and fully, that and, Go ahead. you fully anticipate that this has some sort of a, a effect on the political landscape on the right, but why isn't it the same case as the left? Why why in 2024, if we've all moved on on the right, that the left wouldn't have moved on as well? Everyone anticipates that the next Republican to be nominated for the presidency will be worse than Trump. 
And it's easy to make that case because if the next Republican president is a conservative in any way, he will have abandoned the kind of economic populist prescriptions that Donald Trump almost appropriated from Democrats when he ran against conservative orthodoxies. It's really easy to make the liberal case that Donald Trump, well, at least Donald Trump did X, Y, and Z. And this president is the worst president, worst Republican nominee we've seen since Mitt Romney. Uh, That's inevitable. Why wouldn't the liberal world have moved on just as we anticipate the conservative world will? Uh, I, I'm not saying that it won't. I don't even. I don't. I, I'm. 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 I'm slightly at a loss as to what that. Has your to your proposition was that the list making on the left will is is a new form of McCarthyism that will persist for X amount of years. Who knows? It'll it'll persist long enough. I mean, I think it's it all dovetails with everything that we've seen over the last over. The, the thing that has happened to the the radicalization of the left that has led to the yes this is a revolution theory that Abe uh, expostulated so brilliantly isn't going anywhere and one of the ways that they enforce their orthodoxy is by making it impossible for anybody who does not cue to it to make a living okay let's take a minute and let me talk to you about expressvpn today's sponsor Look, when you use the restroom, you always close the door behind you, right? Because you don't want random passersby looking in on you. So why would you let people look in on you when you go online? Using the internet without ExpressVPN is like going to the restroom and not closing the door. Did you know that your internet service provider, you know, Comcast, Verizon, knows every single website you visit? And what's worse, they can sell this information to ad companies and tech giants who will use your data to target you. ExpressVPN puts a stop to this. It creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so that your online activity can't be seen by anyone. I use ExpressVPN on all my devices. It works on everything, phones, laptops, even routers. So everyone who shares your Wi-Fi can still be protected, even if they don't have ExpressVPN. And the best part is using ExpressVPN is as easy as closing the bathroom door. You just fire up the app, click one button, and you're protected. ExpressVPN is the world's number one rated VPN by CNET, Wired, The Verge, and countless others. So if you're like me and you believe your online activity is your business, secure yourself by visiting expressvpn.com slash commentary today. Use my exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash commentary, and you can get an extra three months free. That's expressvpn.com slash commentary. Christine. Well, it's interesting that we're talking about whether this, the sort of uh, extreme political correctness, which we now have some hints were, was harmful to Democrats down ballot, uh, whether it will persist and, and a few little anecdotal stories over the weekend with all the celebrations once the networks projected that Biden was the winner. Here in D.C., as the as the night uh, grew later, a Black Lives Matter slash F the police, as they call themselves, protesters showed up at Black Lives Matter Plaza in front of the White House and started denouncing all of the people celebrating Biden's win and saying nothing's changed. It doesn't matter that, you know, nothing's changed. We're out here every weekend. Nothing's changed. And, you know, something that I say in in that in the piece, yes, this is a revolution, um, is that the the revolution is aimed at primarily the liberal establishment, right? That is that is because conservatives are beyond the pale. It goes they're they're not we're not they're not trying to um, assert their will directly on us. They're the, the the idea is to remake the democratic establishment into this radical thing that can then wield power. Um, so now they have their work cut out for them, especially because, as Christine, you point out, um, there are indications that 
the radical program has been harmful to Democrats, right? So that that battle is going to be quite pitched now. Okay, let's talk about uh, Joe Biden's uh, speech on Saturday night. Um, Something interesting is going on that will not last, but is interesting. Uh, Biden pitched himself as the candidate of healing, right? As the, as the, he will, he, he quoted Ecclesiastes, right? A time, time to be born, a time to die, a time to heal. This is a time to heal in a, in a, in an odd way. That was a weird echo of something he doesn't necessarily want to echo because a time to heal was the name of Gerald Ford's Hmm. memoir after he lost the presidency in 1976 to Jimmy Carter. Um, so that phrase, while being a beautiful phrase, timeless phrase from from the Bible, uh, is nonetheless a phrase that is forever associated with a losing one-term president who never even got elected, unlike unlike Biden. Nonetheless, um, he he said, as he keeps saying, I'm going to be the president of all Americans. I'm a proud Democrat. I'm going to be the president of all Americans. Uh, everybody needs to come together. Now, I'm not a big believer in unity as a message. Uh, we live in a, we live in a country in which people have all kinds of different opinions and all kinds of different faiths and all kinds of different approaches to things. And we're not supposed to be unified. Jews don't need to be unified with Catholics on what to do on Saturday, and we don't need to be unified on how on what dietary restrictions we have, and we don't need to be unified on whether we think that our, you know, how how we should raise our children or something like that. Unity is a unity is a often a kind of nauseating political effort. The, the message of unity is often a way of trying to say. If you don't accept my message of unity, then you're outside the circle of trust and you should be excommunicated. It's the opposite of unity in the guise of unity. But nonetheless, uh, Trump began his presidency and ran his presidency with the notion that everybody who voted against him was his enemy. Um, And uh, maybe it's a fiction, and I think he lost the presidency because of it. He, he did marginally better than he did in 2016, right? He got about the 2.5% more of the vote than he got, and he obviously got a lot more votes. But uh, he needed to get a lot more than 2.5% of the votes. He lost five states uh, that he won. Uh, and uh, as, we have, as we said from the beginning to the, you know, saying, having rallies and calling everybody who voted for you an idiot – uh, is not a way to grow your base. It's not a way to gain support. Yes, we have all this data that suggests that he did better among Hispanics and among Blacks and among minorities than than other Republicans have done. But you know, going from eight percent to twelve percent is suggestive of a possible future. But you're still going from eight percent to twelve percent. You're not going from eight percent to forty percent. So I I think that Biden, uh, this change in tone, which is totally cliche riddled, has the may have the capacity to alter the relationship between 
the less political electorate and Washington in a way that will be incredibly helpful to him just by turning down the heat because they're there, you know, the very online world of people who want to spend 24 hours a day in, in pitched battle over everything and the people who want to get on with their lives and want to focus on politics to the extent that they are forced to by circumstance are, are diametrically opposed. They live diametrically opposed lives. So I actually thought in that sense it was a canny speech and it was a good speech. But I gather, Abe, you're not, you weren't so impressed. Well, I mean, I guess I was more focused on the cliche aspect of it. And also, I mean, I have to say that the unity message, and I, and I share your skepticism of it generally, but I also appreciate the, you, why you um, think it may help him in, in this sense, um, was very reminiscent of Barack Obama's rhetoric, not the way Obama governed, but the there are no red states, there are no blue states, um, was it's almost a direct quote. Um, from something Obama said early on when he was uh, nominated, I believe as well. No, um, 2004. That was the big line. Oh, that was that was the 2004 the star making speech. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, so I don't know. Did and this is a, a question I don't I don't quite know the answer to. Did that help Obama? Um, he didn't govern in a, in accordance with that rhetoric, um, and that wasn't missed by a lot of people. I think. The rhetoric gave him cover among kind of those who were already with him to say what he's doing is not particularly partisan. Um, but it, no one else sort of really came on board with that, right? I think that's <clears throat> I think that's right. I mean, Obama's uh, best political day was the day that he was elected president. Got seventy million votes, and then f- four years later, he got four million fewer votes than he got. The first time uh, on the way, he lost the House of Representatives. So in that sense, the rhetoric helped get him elected. uh, And then maybe the gap between the rhetoric and the governance actually made things worse. You know, it it may actually have have, um, caused a flight from him uh, because he didn't live up to the ideals that he had promulgated. Yeah, he went from there are no red states or blue states to... um elections have consequences. Yeah. Well, and that that's where the tone so so maybe Biden will get a little bit more time where before his tone and his actual policies collide, but he didn't run on anything except being not Trump. But if you look at his platform and the stuff that they're starting to issue in the transition now, it's it, it's not uh it's not very unified. I mean, he's going to he you know, he's going to go back to the critical race theory stuff. He's going to he's going back to what appears to be all in with some of the stuff that, again, moderate Democrats who squeaked by in this election are begging their party to, to ease off on. And it doesn't look like that's the plan, at least preliminarily. I, too, watched this in the cold light of Monday morning. I gather if you watched it on Saturday night, there was uh, some emotional appeal to the moment. Um, but I didn't think this particular was a particularly uh, amazing speech. It was the same Joe Biden who elides words that are really important to structure a sentence. Um, there was at one point where he was like, this is going to be an administration for the teachers, which is absolutely horrifying. If you have young children, you do not want an administration governed by teachers at this point. It's shocking that he would say something along those lines, some constituency maintenance, but he should probably have just passed on that in that moment. Nevertheless, it was a fine speech. It was just okay. Um, but that's great 
because if there's a value proposition to the Biden presidency across the board, a nonpartisan value proposition to the Biden presidency, it is that you know the president will no longer occupy the space in your head that he has for the last four years, is that you're at liberty to tune out. And my sense is that a lot of people tuned out. Right. That's. I think that sort of echoes what I was saying. But I was thinking, interestingly, because, uh, Christine, you were the one who pointed out that, you know, uh, <clears throat> Uh, Trump a couple months ago uh, banned the use of critical race theory re-education camps uh, in the federal government and that the uh, one of the executive actions that is presumed that Biden will take on day one will be to restore them. Or he has stated, that, yeah, he stated yeah, okay. he will issue, yeah, he'll okay. So person. here's what I was thinking. So a lot of what happens on uh, liberal administrations to conservative administrations, particularly on day one, are these executive order things that happen where uh, you do things that you can do without any legislative, uh, without the legislature being involved. Um, and a lot of them are constituency maintenance, ideological constituency maintenance. The most famous one are the Mexico City rules governing how the United States handles financial support for institutions abroad that 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 uh perform abortions and so republican administrations end it the, the liberal administrations restore it then they end it then they restore it and it's and in a funny way it's like okay this you guys this is what you wanted you get it thanks for your help and that the heavy lifting the legislative heavy lifting it is it is presumed you do not want to play in the field of social policy at the legislative level because it's too divisive and too awful. And so you play games with executive orders and stuff. I think that the time for this, we may be in a weird tectonic shift here because fighting over the executive orders, it will cost Biden more to impose liberal orders through executive action fiat than it would if he took it to Congress. Take it to Congress. Now, maybe he won't get them, but the idea was, A, you won't get them, and B, it's just too hard. Because of social media, Fox News, the existence of the cable nets, the way all this goes, these hot-button issues... All you have to do is have one administration official say one crazy thing. All you have to do is have one executive order that goes too far. And the stuff that we've been hearing over the weekend from Abigail Spanberger, who very narrowly survived a challenge from Republicans, and Connor Lamb in Pennsylvania, who very narrowly survived a challenge from Republicans, and all of this is Jim Clayton. Jim Clyburn, right, who didn't survive. Right, Jim Clyburn, who the kingmaker, Her right? House Democrat, right. Yeah. They're going to stand there and say, don't do this to me. You know, the big thing that happened this weekend in relation to Georgia, again, it's like these little things that happen, not big time legislation. Was Chuck Schumer saying, you give me the Florida Senate seats, I'll change the world. That's like, thanks very much. Welcome to new Republican senators. Are you crazy? Are you crazy? You hand $200 million worth of value to the campaigns of, of Kelly Loeffler and, and, uh, and David Perdue in the form of 
change you want to vote for these guys and Chuck Schumer that New York guy he's going to change the world is that what you want you vote you, you want to vote in this election to change the world so that AOC can get her stuff and it wasn't across the board but in the states that Republicans usually do well in where the factory settings are Republican lean um Democrats underperformed Joe Biden, notably in Georgia. Right. Um, And it seems like a pretty resonant message that Democrats just won the House and the White House, even if they're not acting like it, which they aren't, which is weird, that they're going to need a check in the form of the Republican Senate. That just seems like a pretty easily winning message. My point is, A, you have the check in the form of the Republican Senate, right? Which is a a simple political message, right? Do you want to give Biden a free hand? Or would you rather he really have to, you know, like come to consensus? That's political. Do you want to let them change the world is cultural and social. So you have now given, you have blended the naked political thing, which is divided government's good because it means nobody gets to just, you know, work their will, you know, by waving their hand. But dividing this government is particularly good because the head of the Senate wants a revolution. That's cultural and social. And that is what Schumer did for them. And this is what I'm saying, like a bad executive order that seems to, you know, that seems to uh, advance radical social orthodoxy will have much further reaching, farther reaching consequences in the current moment than any, than any such thing has ever had before because it's so easily exploited by the other side, by our side. Well, and can I give you one example, another executive order that, that Biden has promised, which is to restore the, the sexual assault and sexual harassment uh, regulations that, that were uh, supreme thanks to a dear colleague letter that was sent during the Obama administration and which uh, under Betsy DeVos um, was uh, the regulations, those were the, the Obama ones, which denied due process to the accused, um, were let go. But the way that DeVos and the Trump administration did that was through the administration, the administrative process. They invited comments. They had a discussion. They did everything by the book and then changed the regulations. If Biden goes back and with the stroke of a pen just, you know, uh, gets rid of that, he's behaving in a way that's quite undemocratic. That's not how the process is supposed to work. And as a conservative, I hate executive orders and I think both sides abuse them too much. But that would be a very clear example of an administration totally overreaching on something that actually had bipartisan uh, critiques of of the way the due process was acting on campus. And he's already said he's going to do that as well. So I'll be interested to see if he if that's top of the list. Christine, Even- you identified another one, too, coming down the pike, which is perhaps a little more relevant in this um, revolutionary era, the restoration of critical race theory yes. as, a, uh, as a tool for imposing discipline on the unruly white people in the yes. federal uh, federal bureaucracy? Yes, and that's actually the kind of thing where I think uh, Trump's actions, uh, I hope, energize people who are in the federal workforce enough that there can be some pushback because if this is restored, what, where, how do they resist that? How do they resist being told they have to confess their white racial sin, which is what was going on until recently? Um, I think there will be more publicizing of that and there will be more people speaking out about it because of the way that Trump kind of aggressively with his executive order 
pointed it out. What are Democrats talking about? I'm sorry, briefly, but what are Democrats saying was the real problem here for moderate Democrats on the down ballot level? Defund the police. They're all pointing at the Spanberger, Clyburn. They're all pointing at that and saying, look, this was wielded like a cudgel against my moderate members and it worked. It worked in places Republicans didn't think it would work in places like Florida. This is terrible and needs to go. And that's what critical race theory is. It's all it's all part and parcel with that that theory. I'm sorry, go. One of the, I was going to say in response to what Christine said, one of the other things that are going to be very interesting in, in the coming months is to see just how many Americans generally are against these radical policies who can now say so without fear of being associated with Trump and Trumpiness, right? That's a, that's a very interesting point. Now, remember, I think I said this on Friday, but it, it really bears repeating that for the six months after, or however many months it was, after the, the protests began on Memorial Day, and we had this massive sort of social bureaucracy incepted that had, you know, that was there, but wasn't ready to sort of be activated at every corporation, every school, every college, everywhere in America to force everyone into these uh, lemon confession sessions and kowtowing sessions um, that we kept hearing that uh, none of the conservative counter um, messages were working or having much of an effect. 70% of people supported Black Lives Matter and they said this and they said that, blah, blah, blah. It's not working. It's not working. Therefore, there was these corporations and uh, associations believed that what they were doing was uncontroversial, not only uncontroversial, but popular, not only popular, but something that they would be praised for doing and that everybody would want to have happen. And now we've had an election and now there's been an election, and as as Clyburn said on Morning Joe and on uh, this week, uh, yesterday, and all of that, two seats were lost in South Florida over defund over defunding the police. That no one weren't on anybody's radar. Uh, Donna Shalala and uh, I can't remember she the I woman mean, who still passed something. Yeah, the, the woman who said, cried on the call and said that no one could pronounce her name, uh, and that's why she lost. Yes, right, Debbie, okay. I, and I can't pronounce her name. Yeah, I know. Grill right. Powell. Right, okay. Powell is not hard. Well, we're no, still anyway. working on your Kamala problem, Noah, so we'll get yeah, there. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay, so so my, my point is that um, this idea that these things don't have political consequences, in fact, that they that they are positives, net positives for for Democrats and liberals, has been conclusively disproven by this election. And what we need to see, and this goes to Noah's, this question Noah has about whether it's pathetic to continue to have certain types of political arguments, is whether they're going to see reality and be afraid of it, or whether in the Trump era, just as Trump creates a reality distortion field for conservatives who don't understand that the things, his behavior is so unpopular or whatever, um, just as he creates reality, Black Lives Matter may be creating a reality distortion field for Democrats who don't are who aren't able to see beyond it to um, moderating their behavior on these questions before the electorate hits them over the head with a two by four in twenty twenty two. 
But that was the Latin X problem as well, right? The idea, I think there are a lot of sort of progressively minded, white, college educated Democratic voters who think, well, we know what defund the police mean. It doesn't mean abolish. It means, you know, more mental health workers, reform. We all know that. But if you live in a in a lower or high, uh, like a uh, non-college educated neighborhood where crime is high, defund the police means fewer police on the ground to keep you safe and to protect your family. That's all they heard. So just like I think, you know, progressives are like Latinx is a term of enlightenment. You know, a, a, a Venezuelan American in Florida was like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> like, what does that even mean? So I yeah. do feel like there is a real disconnect between the progressive college educated elite identity politics people who are they should be shocked by how little resonance their message has with the groups of people they claim to be protecting and identifying here. And defund the police was a really stark example of that in this election. There is a category of comedy that only conservatives can enjoy especially conservatives with people of Hispanic descent in their immediate social circles or loved ones. Because when they encounter that word for the first time, they react to it with a mix of disdain, confusion, and frustration that is almost violent. And it's it's just hilarious every single time. Unfortunately, progressives can't enjoy that kind of comedy. It's much like they can't enjoy any kind of comedy these days. <laughs> I'll get back to that. Okay, so uh, we will... Get back to you tomorrow uh, for uh, Abe, Christina, No, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.